You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. On the phone right now, we have Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, and uh, he is going to be campaigning for Herschel Walker, and we're going to talk with him about that. But first of all, Senator, welcome. I have two of my children, married girls from Lexington, Kentucky, so I have two of my sons and their families living in Lexington, Kentucky, so I appreciate you being with us today. Well, you know, that's awesome because I have a connection to northern Georgia. I uh, met my wife in Atlanta, and I used to work as an ER doctor up in Dahlonega and Tacoa and Demarest and those places. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so my husband's a primary care physician, and he used to, he was more in the Sandersville. He went to MCG, and he did his, a lot of moonlighting in Sandersville and places like that. So um, it's a lot of hard work, that's for sure, and we appreciate everything that you do. First of all... The biggest challenge I think we're seeing, and I'm hearing from people as I travel around Georgia, is that now that the balance of the Senate is not in play, a lot of people want to know why they should go out to vote. What is the difference between, you know, 51-49 and 50-50? Why is this seat important? You know, one of the things I've been intent on is investigating Fauci, investigating the origins of the virus, and trying to make sure this doesn't happen again. I'm, I'm convinced that this virus leaked from a lab, and the investigations will be done by the committee. So I've met the House. It's great that we have the House. I've met with Jim Jordan and Jamie Comer over there. They're going to investigate it, and they have subpoena power. In the Senate, I'm still pushing for an investigation. If we get an investigation and Herschel Walker wins, It'll be 50-50 on the committees, and that means an equal number, and we'll have more say in the investigations and more say in exactly how the committees are run. The other thing I tell people is, look, I, you know, the thing is, is I'm probably the most libertarian senator in the Senate now or probably ever, and I understand why people are frustrated with both parties and why people vote libertarian. But the thing is, is now it's a runoff and there isn't a libertarian choice People who care about the debt, people who care about vaccine mandates, people who just want to be left alone, which is the libertarian mantra, you know, their best bet for voting to give me more power is to vote for Herschel Walker. So it's an indirect way of uh, supporting Herschel, but it's very sincere in the sense that it's in my self-interest. It's in the self-interest of other self-proclaimed libertarians to have Herschel Walker up there because it gives me more power in the committees, more power in the investigations, and frankly, more power to speak out against the hypocrisy of both parties. You know, I, um, as I mentioned to you, my husband's a primary care physician. He's an old primary care physician, so he's only working part-time these days. But you know how that goes in medicine. You call it part-time, but it's not really. But... Um, one of the biggest mistakes I think we made, and there were many of them as we went through the pandemic, was that we didn't really use primary care physicians. There's something like 220,000 primary care physicians in America. I'm sure they were doing things that were working, that were helping people with COVID-19. But it seemed like there was no desire on the part of Anthony Fauci or anybody else to look at treatments to look at the care that people were putting together it was all about the vaccine which was fine i i chose to have the vaccine because i had some risk factors involved where it was appropriate for me to get it uh but 
in the in the real world we didn't use all the tools that we had because uh anthony fauci and his department were not open to it well this is what happens when you allow medicine to become centralized historically medicine was decentralized you would talk with your own family doctor there would be different treatments. People would be trying different treatments to treat people. And there's some experimentation going on with legal drugs to try to figure out what treatment works. And I'll give you an example. In March of 2020, when this was just getting started, it was just getting to the United States, I said to Dr. Fauci in committee, what do you think of treating some of these patients who are getting very sick with their lungs fill up with fluid with steroids? Because this is what we do in other diseases where your lungs fill up with steroids, uh, which often leads to death. And he says, oh, we tried that and it doesn't work. So I talked to a good doctor, a friend of mine in Shreveport, who'd been treating these viral pneumonias with steroids with success. And he says after Fauci made that proclamation, after it was pushed down from hospitals that it wasn't acceptable to use steroids, they quit using them for about 12 weeks, and many, many people died. And then about 12 weeks later, someone said, you know what, Fauci's not right. They studied this. And it turns out when you're on the ventilator, when you're very, very sick, the one treatment that absolutely works at that stage and helps you maybe saves a third of the lives is steroids, an old-fashioned steroid treatment. But there are many other treatments that are out there that have theories behind them that are anti-inflammatory. And I'm not here to promote them or say that they absolutely work, but they should have been studied. For example, hydroxychloroquine is a drug for malaria, but it was used off-label for many years and finally approved for rheumatoid arthritis, which is an inflammatory condition. And so we've used drugs in the past that were indicated for one condition for another. And if we take that freedom away from doctors, if we lock these doctors up, if we take their licenses, if we uh, don't allow any kind of dissent, you won't find discoveries because discoveries come from people who often dissent with the majority and say, no, I'm going to try this and see if it works. But uh, losing that freedom is is a real problem. And, and there were and, people and Senator, doing different cocktails that were working. And Senator Paul, it's anti-science. Science is not when people say settled science, whether they're talking about climate change or they're talking about COVID-19. It just drives me crazy because I raised a bunch of scientists, including my husband being a doctor. And and I remember the conversations and I have have heard people talk and I have learned myself. Science is never settled. You're always finding out new things. And anyone who has the arrogance to say that they are science, as Dr. Fauci did, that an attack on him is an attack on science. Is someone really that needs to be nowhere near the reins of power, needs to be nowhere near um, any kind of decision-making, because that kind of arrogance is very, very destructive. So, you know, with regard to centralization, what happened during COVID is the government owned everything. The government owned the vaccines, but they also owned the monoclonal antibodies. So one of the worst decisions that Fauci and the government made was you're not allowed to get monoclonal antibodies if you're an inpatient. They just said, absolutely, this is the rule. And so most hospitals followed that edict. But I was getting calls from people all over Kentucky and all over the U.S. saying, my spouse is very sick and they're getting ready to have to put them on the ventilator. And I've heard you talking about the monoclonal antibodies. Can I get this? And their doctor would get on the phone with me and say, we can't give it to them as an inpatient. I was like, well, can you push them across the curtain into the ER, give it to them, and then push them back across the curtain and call them an inpatient? That's how ridiculous centralized uh, sort of rigid algorithms coming from government are. 
but they also don't allow the serendipity of people discovering things uh, by trial and error, which is sometimes the way we find and, and discover great cures. Senator Paul, I appreciate. Thank you so much for being a, such a warrior for this particular point of view and not letting it go. And I think because if we shut doors on scientific discovery, then we're going to end up with the kinds of problems that we had. Um, again, tell folks one more time why they need to vote for Herschel Walker. The reason why I think people should vote for Herschel Walker is it'll make the Senate 50-50, gives people like me, people who are libertarian-leaning that believe the deficit is a problem, more power, and it allows us to be closer to taking the Senate the next time. So if we're wanting to get to 51, if we're at 50, that means we only need one seat next time instead of two. It also means that there's more discussion. The Democrats will have to talk with us more about the agenda. They'll still be in the majority, but there will be more power on the committees to Republicans. But frankly, if you're somebody who, you know, is completely unhappy with both parties and thinks they're all hypocrites and they all spend too much money, I agree with you. But in order to give people like me that have that voice that will talk about the hypocrisy of both parties, the spending and the deficit and big government, in order to give me a bigger voice, it helps to have more power in the Senate. So I have more power of Herschel Walker. So purely from a selfish point of view, if libertarians want the libertarian voice that I have in the Senate to be louder, they should show up. And I'm not against libertarians having their own choice. You know, they did until the runoff. They had their candidate. But rather than sit home, I think it is a time at which you look at both candidates, and I'd say one leans way, way to the left and the other one leans to the right. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the idea of trying to uh, replace Warnock with, with Herschel Walker is a good one, and I think he will be somebody that will – fit right in in the Republican caucus and allow us to uh, have a greater uh, voice to try to turn this country around. I think we we still face enormous hurdles with this debt and with the inflation. And uh, frankly, we, we need to uh, have more members of the caucus, not less. Senator Rand Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Martha. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining me right now is former State Representative Kevin Tanner. Welcome, Kevin. Great to be with you again, Martha. So we are, you have a new position that you're going to be taking over the middle of December. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was honored that Governor Kemp offered me the position of Commissioner of the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Uh, Judy Fitzgerald has held that position for a long time, done a tremendous job. She announced her retirement. She left um, just a few days ago, and I'll be taking over on the 16th. So tell us just a little bit about what's going to happen there, because we've got this huge piece of legislation, uh, House Bill 1013, that was passed in the last session, uh, something you we talked to you about at the time. Uh, you were very instrumental, even though you were not in the House at the time it was passed. You had been working on these issues for a long time. So is that going to be the main focus, is updating the department to reflect all the changes that were made in that bill? Well, that's definitely part of it. Uh, House Bill 1013, which was uh, really driven by Speaker David Ralston. And going all the way back to 2019, when I was still in the General Assembly and we introduced legislation creating the Behavioral Health Reform and Innovation Commission, Speaker Ralston was a partner in that and helped drive that effort. In 2019, that commission was created. It's made up of 26 of what I believe to be the most talented individuals ever put together on an issue. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to chair that commission appointed by Governor Kemp. 
And that led to House Bill 1013, which the Speaker introduced and, and got through the General Assembly this past session. That made a lot of changes in Georgia, and it's going to make a lot of changes to the departments. There's still a lot of work to be done. We just had a commission meeting last week where we rolled out our recommendations for this year. That will lead to what I would anticipate to be another major piece of legislation or even multiple bills that will uh, go into the General Assembly. So we're looking forward to briefing the governor, uh, the House and Senate leadership on that. What are the kind of things that are next steps? What are the kinds of things that need to be added? One of the biggest challenges we have in health care in general, and George, as you know, uh, I know your husband's a longtime physician, and you're close to the medical community, but is is workforce. And, and that's a, especially important in mental health services. The Department of Behavioral Health has a tremendous amount of openings, and they're shorthanded. Uh, it's also, we have so many places in Georgia that's underserved. So one of the things that we identified early on is the fact that Georgia's reimbursement rates are so low compared to other states. Part of House Bill 1013 directed that DCH do a study to look at those reimbursement rates. That study is due to be completed at the end of this year. I would anticipate that will lead to increases, hopefully, in those reimbursement rates for Georgia. Virginia did something very similar, and it led to almost an immediate turnaround in the workforce shortage in Virginia in the mental health space. So we're excited about that. But we've really got to think, and I know this term's overused, but outside the box of how we address workforce shortages in the space. We're working on that. We did loan forgiveness. We've done some other things in House Bill 1013, but uh, that is going to continue to be a big focus. So reimbursements, workforce. One of the other things that we spent, uh, Dr. Eric Lukowicz, who is Associate Dean of the Medical College of Georgia, chairs our subcommittee for child and adolescence um, subcommittee. He's been working on focusing on child and adolescent mental health. We know that traditionally in Georgia we've not done enough in that space uh, to be able to get treatment early on in the process when we first see signs, um, and and I think we're going to see major improvements in that area. They have around 53 recommendations coming out of that subcommittee, so that'll be a big part of our overall commission. Well, I mean, and there's a real shortage of psychiatrists, okay? And, and, you know, across the board, there aren't enough slots in medical schools. I hope people, you will, you know, we've got to have more slots in medical schools. We have a much bigger population, but yet the overall number of slots has not increased that much. And not just in Georgia, but across the country. We also need to figure out a way to get people just like, you know, getting people into the places where they have jobs you know, getting people into that psychiatrist space is really important. Uh, Also, you've got lots of issues related to, uh, I'm sure the reimbursement rate is is big, but in in this area where we have a huge number of doctors and a fantastic medical system, I think there's one psychiatrist at NGPG, which is the, the big physician practice, and there might be three other ones practicing in the community. That's not enough for this area, uh, and we've got to have more because the real problem is being able to get services to people before the bad stuff happens because there's there's some legal issues related to that, too, like when families can intervene, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right, and, and one of the things that we learned, too, in Georgia it's diff- we don't we have not traditionally tracked where people practice certain types of medicine whether or not they take medicaid whether or not they take certain insurances whether are they just strictly and a lot of psychiatrists and clinicians have went to just strictly private pay so if you're not able to private pay you're not even able to access the system and that's 
that's a challenge. And part of that's the reimburse, low reimbursement rates. Part of it's not having enough folks in the workforce. So it, it's a challenge. And one of the things House Bill 1013 did is it's uh, creating a database that will start tracking where people practice whether or not they take those uh, insurances, Medicaid, et cetera, that will help identify what the real problems are and where the real gaps are. But you're correct about medical school. We're going to have to increase the residency slots that we have in the state. We're also going to have to try to find a way, how do we encourage people through, whether it's loan forgiveness or other educational incentives, to come back and practice in those needed areas And it's not just psychiatrists that are medical doctors. It's also the need for master-level clinicians because a lot of these services can be provided at a level below a psychiatrist. But being able to get people excited about practicing that area, it's been challenging, uh, but we all got to work together and find solutions to that. Well, and also if you can get more of the residencies and things like that, is that you tend to be able to get them to stay if they have a residency here. And that's, I mean, Governor Deal was so good at expanding primary care residencies here in the state. And we've seen a great improvement in the number of primary care physicians. So we can do it and we've got a model. We've got a template we've already used that we can use in this case. Yeah, I agree 100% because one of the things we're doing is sending some of our best and brightest folks coming out of medical school to other states to do residency. They fall in love with those places, they get job opportunities, and they leave our state and stay there. So we need to keep that talent here in the state of Georgia. So that's going to have to be a big focus moving forward. And I think finding ways to partner with our uh, college system, the university system, and others with the Department of Behavioral Health, being able to create those educational opportunities here in Georgia – Um, I went to the medical college and met with the dean there uh, and talked about the needs that we have. So I'm looking forward to bridging some of those relationships as I move forward in this role to be able to create real opportunities for change. Where do you see as the the biggest area that we have problems right now? Because we just we hear every day about police forces adding mental health uh, clinicians, I guess, is the best thing or people on that that are familiar with mental health. Is that the area the kind of where law enforcement intersects with mental health or is that the biggest area? No, I don't think so. I, I think that gets most attention uh, because the nature of, of any time law enforcement interacts with someone that gets gets a lot of uh, attention from the media. But a small, small percentage of people who suffer from mental health issues ever have contact with law enforcement. I will tell you, Justice Boggs, our, our chief justice now, Mike Boggs, with the Georgia Supreme Court, chairs our corrections subcommittee. And he's been leading an effort for us called Familiar Faces. And what they've done is studied and identified the fact that only about 1% of the people who come, who are frequent flyers through jail who suffer from mental health issues end up costing the system the majority of the money. So being able to identify services for that 1% of the population coming that we call Familiar Faces is going to be a big cost saver for our state. Um, and he's doing some tremendous work in that area, and those recommendations are also going to be rolled out later this year. Uh, but I think that's part of it. I think overall just access in general, which deals with workforce, which deals with more provi- providers, which deals for more crisis centers, which all of that wrapped up together and access is a big part of the problem. So tell us uh, what are the other things that this department does so that people understand because it's, you know, Department of Community Health. That can mean a lot of things. Yeah, Department of Behavioral Health and Behavioral Development. Behavioral Health, Dispar- sorry. No, that's fine. It's uh, 
it, it deals with everything relating to the behavioral health safety net system of the state. So all the community service boards that we hear about, like Avita here in our area, they fall under the Department of Behavioral Health as far as they receive their funding from the Department of Behavioral Health. Well, it also operates the state's mental health hospitals that are uh, scattered across Georgia. It also funds a lot of other uh, entities such as uh, Georgia Substance Abuse Council and others that do a lot of great work in Georgia. But it also focuses on the developmental disabilities, so folks who suffer from that area. And that sometimes doesn't get enough attention, but that's a big area where we just don't have services. We hear stories about how people languish in emergency rooms, especially those who have a developmental disability and suffer from a mental health issue. So um, the department does all of those things. Uh, we have uh, 7,000 employees spread out across Georgia. We have regional offices across the state. We have several mental health hospitals across the state. Uh, also, through our community service board partners, operate crisis stabilization centers, which have been proven to be very successful. We're looking at building one in Forsyth now. That'll be what we're calling a whole health facility. It's going to have a health department and a mental health facility with a 30-bed crisis stabilization unit and a 24-hour emergency room with a 24-hour prescriber for mental health patients. So if you have a loved one that's in mental health crisis, instead of going to the emergency room, you bring them there. You've got a prescriber on duty that's able to give them the treatment they need immediately. Do you know whether we have one of those in this in this community? You do. You, uh, Avita, uh, who's the community service board partner here, for DBHDD, they uh, operate one here in Hall County. Actually, it was uh, built uh, the last two or three years, and the one we're building in Forsyth is going to be combined with a health department, so it's going to be a larger space, but we're we're designing the mental health side uh, after the one they did here in Hall County. How can people help you? Well, I think uh, encouraging our young people and others uh, or people who are looking to change careers at really considering a field in this space. Uh, It is a, you know, I never thought that I would be taking this challenge on, but one of the things through events in my own life of of dealing with people and having people who have suffered from mental health issues, um, we need people who are willing to step up and really participate and help us. Uh, solve these problems and these issues. So I think looking at this as a career, because there's nothing more rewarding than being able to serve people in that capacity. Um, and I also think just looking for places to plug in. We have a lot of great nonprofits in the community who are helping provide wraparound services. Because one of the things I'll say, we can bring someone in, we can get them stabilized, we can bring them across the stabilization center, we can take them to the emergency room, a long-term care facility where they can get treatment. But eventually... 95% of those folks are going to find their way back to the community. And if we don't provide them the wraparound services they need to be successful, um, they're going to be find themselves back in crisis again. So I think um, helping a volunteer with these nonprofits donate to these nonprofits that are providing good services uh, is a good start. Kevin Tanner, thank you so much for being with us today, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for having me. The Martha Zoller Show is presented by Gainesville Mechanical on North Georgia's News Talk, AM 550 and FM 102.9, WDUN. Joining me right now is Herschel Walker. He is the candidate uh, for the Republican Party in the runoff. Uh, We just heard Senator Rand Paul and Steve Moore make great cases for why even in a Senate 
that we may not gain control of. It's important to get out and vote for Herschel Walker. So we thought it would be great to have Herschel come on again and talk about what the campaign's like and why this vote is so important. Herschel Walker, welcome back to the program. Hello there. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. So I know you hear this on the campaign trail. People, I hear it as I'm going around Georgia that, hey, the Senate's not in play anymore. Why should I go out and vote? What do you tell people? Well, the Senate is still in play, and it's very, very important because the people got to have their voices heard. Right now, you know, just because you go back to a fifth and fifth, you're still going to have your voices heard. You can always get someone to cross over. And that's one of the things I said that I want to do is bring people together. I think when you get good leaders in Washington, sometimes those leaders can talk to other people on the other side and maybe can get them to cross over. Don't You don't give up. And I, I think that's one way you can have your voices heard because I will speak for the Georgia people. That's something Senator Warnock has not done is spoken for the Georgia people. I think he's spoken for himself and he's spoken for Joe Biden. I think that was the problem. Right now, I want everyone to remember uh, December the 6th, get out and vote or get into the early voting and go vote to have your voices heard and your vote counted. And what are you hearing as you go on the campaign trail? Because I know one of the things you do is a lot of retail politics. You're out there. You're talking to people. You're shaking hands. You're traveling around the state. What are you hearing? You know, what I'm hearing, people, uh, they're concerned still about this inflation. They're concerned about the border. Yeah, you know, that's the two things I'm hearing a lot of. And the people are aware, you know, they are aware of what's really happening. And what I tell them is, guys, the way you can uh, have your voices heard, speaking up by voting, voting for someone that believes in protecting the border, voting for someone that's going to secure the, vote, the border. You know, Senator Warnock doesn't seem to want to secure the border. He doesn't even want to talk about it. He doesn't even know that it, it exists and vote for someone that's going to believe in trying to get this inflation down by getting this economy together. And the way you do that is first got to get our energy bite. Get our energy bite where it's going to create jobs, going to create this economy that's going by putting money back into this economy, and they're going to create small businesses. you got to have people that believe in those projects. And I believe in that. I believe in the people. I believe that we can do things together. I believe in we the people, not we the government. I think Senator Warnock believes in the government. He believes in misleading people. That's what's happening right now. You got to go out and speak for the people, and that's what I do. And that's why I say get out and vote. Go to teamherschel.com. Let's get out and vote. Let's get this thing back together. So what do you, if you're elected to the United States Senate, what are the first things you're going to do? One of the first things I want to do is get our, get this inflation down. Right now, I think people, pocketbook is hurting them. And I think people, now, not just your pocketbook, think about your retirement account. You know, your retirement account right now, people are having to go into their retirement account to probably pay for their Thanksgiving meal. You know, Thanksgiving meal is going up, what, 20% already. And that's because of Senator Warnock. And your gas price is going up. Your utility bill is going up. And they're not going to change. Things are going to get worse. And then, you know, as this cold weather comes in right now, your utility bill is going to get worse. So... That's one of the things you want to get under control, and that involves getting our energy bike. Once you get our energy bike, get us doing our own energy, which we can do it environmental-friendly right here in the United States of America. It can be done right here in the United States of America, and that's going to put money back into this economy, going to start creating jobs, get some of the uh, government regulation out, move the government out of the way so the people can flourish.
I said, get the government out of the way so the people can flourish, and you get the economy back stirred up again. And the next thing I want to do is get crime under control. Get our men and women in blue bike to work in the sense that I want to let them know that I will always, always have their bikes so they can get the recruitment back up and they can get the, uh, their morale back up because we got to have law and, law and order. People, I want moms and daughters and boy, little boys to be able to walk out of their places and feel safe. Know that they're not going to be uh, hit by a straight bullet. They're not going to be uh, be robbed or anything that's going to happen to them. That They're going to be able to feel safe again. And that can be done because, you know, you just got to support all men and women in blue. And Senator Warnock is calling them names. He doesn't even talk about it. And those are things that we got to get back together because this is America. America is the greatest country in the world. You don't see uh, people trying to cross over into China, trying to cross over into these other countries. And they're still trying to cross over into the United States of America because this is the greatest place in the world today is the United States of America. You know, I the, I have to go to Atlanta, obviously, on a regular basis. And I have a couple of meetings coming up and one where I'm going to have to stay the night. I'm not going to be able to come home. For the first time in my lifetime, I when I was making that reservation, I was thinking, gee, do I want to stay there? Is it going to be safe there? Am I going to be able to to do what I need to do and not have to worry. I've never felt like that before, Herschel. I've always felt like I was pretty safe anywhere I went in Georgia. But there are times now where when I'm, especially when I'm going to Atlanta, where I think, is it going to be safe there? Well, you know, and that's what a lot of people think right now. And that's sad that that's the kind of mentality we have right now. But it's because of people we've elected to office that have forgotten about what this country was built on. This country was built on laws. It was built on your responsibility. Right now, people are not held responsible for anything. Senator Warnock believes in no cash bail. Senator Warnock believes in releasing people from prison. And we become prisoners in our own home. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have people out of prison. I'm saying if they're reformed, we can help them to do that as well. But it has to be done correctly. Right now, we have a problem. And the problem is our leaders in Washington, Senator Warnock, and I'm saying this is less than two short years. Yeah, not quite two years. This is less than two years. And now he's asking for six more years of the, this right here. And I don't know if we can put up with six years of this. Now, this has probably been one of the nastiest and more, most personal um, campaigns against somebody that I've ever seen. Uh, Senator Warnock has spent three or four times the amount of money that you have spent um you know, it is, it's been really to a level, I think they've used doctored photographs. They've done all kinds of things. How is your family doing, number one? And number two, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, uh, like I, I am a man of faith. And I love my Lord Jesus. And I said it when I got into this race, you know, to have a man out of cloth that is misleading people. You know, and people need to go and see what he's done to this apartment at Columbia Towers. You know, he directed money, and I think there was an article out about it today. He directed millions of dollars to this apartment unit that people are living in filth, living in feces. There have been dead bodies found in this apartment unit that is owned 99% by the church. And i tell you something that was very uh, telling, and I want people to know this. You know, he went into my hometown last night, which was great. I think he should go into my hometown and let the people hear his voice and let the people know who he was. But he talked to a man that mislead people again. This guy never taught me, never coached me, and he stole from the church as well. 
So it's like, do you, that's who you hang around with, people that take advantages of the church? You know, that's not right. And that's the reason I reckon God has put me here. Because when you see people like that, that are misleading people, that gets on the pulpit and preaches, you know, he preached uh, a sermon that uh, by attacking him, you're attacking Jesus. By attacking him, you're attacking Martin Luther King. But I want everyone to know that Horst Walker is saying this, that Senator Warnock, you're not Jesus, and you're not Martin Luther King. You took advantage of the people in that apartment or unit. You have put the uh, Georgia in the position it in because of your vote, and you are not leading people the right way. Martin Luther King says the content that your character, not the color of your skin. So quit trying to compare yourself to someone like that. That is totally false. And quit going into places having people that do the same thing you're doing. I know you were very close to Coach Dooley, who passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, they'll be having a big a big ceremony. I know you went to the private uh, funeral service. But just tell us a little bit about Coach Dooley just before I let you go. Well, you know, Coach Dooley, he taught me about teamwork. He taught me about working together. And he taught me about family. You know, uh, he and Ms. Dooley, you know, God bless the Dooley family. And I say this, you know, uh, when I left my little hometown in Wrightsville, you know, my mom and dad, they taught me about respect. They taught me how to uh, how to be a man. Well, you know, you have 16, 70-year-old kids going up to the University of Georgia, and now Coach Dooley becomes your parents. He's, he was like Miss Dooley and Coach Dooley was like my mom and dad. They taught me the same uh, values that my parents taught me in Wrightsville, how to respect people, how to work. How to be disciplined? How to re- how to do your how to do things like as an adult become a young man? And so losing Coach Dooley was very very painful, very hurtful because you've never thought that you know he's such a strong man. You never thought you'd lose anyone like that. But then I think he also prepared me for this moment right here. You know, I ran the commercial that I was going to take down that he did for me, and Miss Dooley said, "No, no, no. He wanted you to do that. That's what he wanted you to do." And you know, that meant so much to me because that's what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to win this because I never thought I'd ever be doing something like this for a Senate seat. That's never was the farthest thing from my mind. But I cannot not do it because God has blessed me so much from where I came from to where I'm at today. God has blessed me so much that I know I, this is where I'm supposed to be. At the time right now, this is where I'm supposed to be because I have to stop what is going on? And I know I can stop it because I'm not afraid to say no to a lot of things that is happening in this country. I'm not afraid to stand up when there may be so many standing against what is wrong against Georgia, what is wrong against the United States of America. I love this country. I love this country. I love this state. And for them to continue to do what they're doing to it is not right. Herschel Walker, thank you so much for being with us today. Happy Thanksgiving. And have a Thanksgiving to all, and God bless you, and thank you guys so much. Putting the talk in news talk, it's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and um, just in full disclosure before we talk about this, during the last, from March until October, I served as the interim executive director for the Georgia Life Alliance, and we were one of the groups that worked very hard to pass the heartbeat bill. And, you know, when the decision came down Friday, of course, I'm still on the board, and we were very concerned about that. We are very encouraged that the personhood aspects of the bill were upheld, but we had a lot of questions, and the Lord that we have have been looking at it, but in the interim, uh, Sarah Parshall Perry at the Heritage Foundation wrote a a really um, 
scathing analysis of this uh, decision. And so we wanted to have her on to talk about it today. Sarah Partial Perry, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So just give people just kind of an overview of, and understand not everyone's a lawyer, an overview of this decision and why it's wrong. Sure. Um, And the history here, as you know, Martha, helps a little bit. This isn't the first time that this case has been before the court. It actually went up to the 11th Circuit. The case is Sister Song, Women of Color, Reproductive Justice versus Georgia. And it went up through the 11th Circuit because at that time, the claim was that it was unconstitutional, right? That it conflicted with Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Clear enough, the Heartbeat Act was passed in 2019. We know at that point, the Dobbs decision hadn't come down yet but the 11th circuit waited they knew that Dobbs had been taken up by the supreme court and when that opinion was issued they found that heartbeat act to be constitutional saying listen the legislature only needed a rational basis to pass this law we find it constitutional they lifted the injunction and it went into effect but this time the second time around Sister Song Reproductive Justice Coalition wanted to try it in state court. And their claim was essentially that now this was an unconstitutional state court violation and that at the time of its enactment, it was good law. So it had to continue to be good law. This is a very novel approach to arguing something that doesn't pass legal muster. But here's how the judge twisted his understanding of what the judiciary's role is. And it was this particular angle that we took issue with. Judge McBurney decided to view the courts as a kind of super legislature, meaning that even though at the time that law was enacted, it was unconstitutional and therefore could never have gone into effect, His claim was that only following Dobbs' enactment and going forward were those particular cases bound by Dobbs. So in other words, the Heartbeat Act was never law, could never go into law, and that the legislators in your state would have to go right back to the beginning, and they'd have to negotiate it all over again. Well, quite frankly, a number of other conservative legal commentators have written on this case He is almost certain to be overturned on appeal because his understanding of the court as a legislature is incorrect. In fact, what the court does in the Supreme Court specifically as being the ultimate arbiter of what the law means is determined that there was never a constitutional right to abortion and that all precedents previously that are directly relevant to Roe and Casey are overturned. That means that the heartbeat law can rationally and legally go into effect. And, you know, it did. The, he didn't deal with any of the personhood, which is really from our perspective at Georgia Life Alliance, is 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 one of the most important things about the bill, is that it establishes that uh, the protection of the baby begins at conception, and that is important. And it's we're the first state to do that, and I'm very excited about that. But what do you think ultimately? I mean, I know you think he's going to be overturned. Will there be any other recourse, or will it have to go all the way up to the Supreme Court again? 
Well, I know that Kara Richardson, who's the spokesperson for the Georgia AG, Chris Carr, has said that they've already started the appeal process to go to the Georgia Supreme Court because he is a superior court judge, so he is a lower court judge. This is ultimately the next viable option, and it is the ultimate option because they've already been through the federal route. So at this point, the Georgia Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter on questions of Georgia state law. And this is what the Supreme Court would tell them anyway. They would say you have to go back to the drawing board within your state now because it's a state law question. You know what we've said about the federal law constitution and the fact that Roe never recognized the right to abortion. So I think it's pretty certain that unless these Georgia Supreme Court justices are in total abdication of their duty as jurists that this will be overturned because it had a lot of us conservative legal scholars scratching our heads as somebody who, again, this individual went to Harvard Law School. He is He's not a dummy. He's a sharp judge. But he decided that he would determine that the Supreme Court was supposed to be acting more like a legislative body and less like a judicial body. And regardless of what they said about the fact that Roe was egregiously wrong, that ultimately he was going to come to the conclusion that he wanted to come to. And that's ultimately not going to pass muster on appeal. Well, one of my biggest complaints about Congress, quite frankly, is that, um, you know, because the Supreme Court rules on something doesn't mean that it's over. It is over as far as the Constitution is concerned. But many times, and Justice Scalia was very famous for doing this, he would always point out in his decisions, okay, legislature, this now it's your job to fix this. You know, we're telling you what's wrong with this. It's your job to fix it. But as you know, many groups would and legislators would rather have something to argue about than actually, you know, do something to fix something. Um, yeah. And it's just what happens. Explain to folks about Dobbs, because I think that's one of these things that people hear a lot about, but they don't really understand what what the importance was of the Dobbs case. It's hard to overstate the importance of this case, and it really was um, such a watershed case. But the court took the opportunity in a precisely presented question, and they had to confront this issue of viability head on. And the reason this was the perfect vehicle for overturning Roe versus Wade is because it actually took another state law, Mississippi's Gestational Age Act from 2018, and it had to deal specifically with whether or not the States could legislate on a point that was before viability. In other words, did they have an ability to restrict abortion constitutionally, even though they hadn't gotten to that hallmark that Roe versus Wade established when they divided things into trimesters? Remember, they built a very sloppy privacy analysis saying that ultimately somewhere in the penumbras and emanations of the 14th Amendment, due process clause, there is a right to privacy that also means a right to abortion. And the Supreme Court justices just in June said we have to recognize the fact that not only does the Constitution not present it in its text, it is not germane to the ordered history tradition or text of any laws in the country regulating abortion before Roe versus Wade. And in fact, all 50 states 
prior to Roe versus Wade in 1973, had restricted abortion to some extent or another. But what Roe did was essentially rip that power to determine state issues like medicine and like women's health care out of the hands of state legislators and say the judiciary knows better. We're going to tell you there's a constitutional right, which thankfully we recognize now that five justices admitted once and for all was absolutely egregiously wrong, as they called it, and that the factors arguing for overturning it were greater than those factors that argued for keeping it. So it was a tremendous sort of clarification of the importance of following the text of the Constitution, not reading into it outcomes that we want. And even though Dobbs came from Mississippi, which is a very conservative state, it was really kind of where most people were, if I read Dobbs correctly. And I'm just talking about the law, meaning that, you know, it was basically a first trimester limitation. There were some exceptions. It was kind of where if you ask the average person on the street, what do you think about this, kind of where the average person is. Am I reading that wrong? No, you are reading it absolutely correctly. In in fact, the fact that it passed both chambers in Mississippi and was signed into law by the governor indicates the fact that Mississippi was doing what Mississippi's always had a right to do, which is legislate on issues like this at the level closest to its citizenry. And quite frankly, American popular opinion indicates that about 60 to 70 percent of individuals in America are comfortable with right around that first trimester for abortion. But anything past that, once we get into that 15, 16 week marker, people are in less degrees comfortable with abortion. And we were in America keeping track with nations like North Korea and communist China in the fact that we essentially allowed abortion up until demand. So you're absolutely right. Public opinion was behind the sentiment that helped pass the Mississippi Gestational Age Act. Well, and then the thing is, you know, I a lot of people, call, I've done a lot of interviews in the last few months because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade with 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 organizations across the country in my role as the executive director, interim executive director for Georgia Life Alliance. And one of the things that that they couldn't they were very surprised at that that say when Kansas took the vote, they did. And even some of the votes that happened in the election, I and I wasn't upset about that. I said, that's exactly what we wanted. That's exactly what the pro-life movement wanted. They wanted, yeah. sure, I would like, I'm a very strict pro-life person, but but this is states deciding for themselves how they want to handle this issue. That's exactly what yeah. I wanted. If it doesn't end up my way every time, well, you can live to fight another day. But that's what it. the law wants. That's what the law should be. Listen, the, the closing line of the Dobbs opinion summarizes it perfectly. Perfectly. It is time to return the issue of abortion to the people and their elected representatives. And Martha, you know, this is the way that the entire system of our federal government is supposed to work. Questions like this involving health, safety, medicine, welfare have always been issues left to the states under the 10th Amendment. And there are over a 100 years of case law proving just that. But for some reason, these seven men in Roe versus Wade thought they knew better than state legislators and decided that they'd pull a right 
out of the federal constitution well, because this argument, the society was going there. And this argument that somehow state legislators that are elected for roughly fifty to 60,000 people, maybe in our state Senate it's about 200,000 people, are not closer to the people than a congressman or a Supreme Court justice uh, is, is ridiculous. Okay, so, right. you know, it is more representative of how the people really think at any given time. Sarah Partial Perry, thank you so much for this great article. It's at Heritage Foundation. I also tweeted it out so you can find it at Martha Zoller. Uh, please be sure and we'll post this interview so people can re-listen to it. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.